It doesn't take long in our lives to realize, does it, that there are many challenges that we face. Oftentimes very difficult ones that we face. Even the Lord Jesus said that every day had enough trouble of its own. So in reality, in the Christian life, there's no such thing as a trouble-free life. And since there will always be obstacles, since there always will be challenges, how are we going to deal with these challenges? And the matter that I'm addressing to you today is one of the most important that you will ever experience in your Christian life. How common is this issue that we're going to deal with? Well, let me ask you this. Is there anyone that's ever been depressed here? Have you ever been anxious about the future for whatever reason? Have you ever wondered whether God really cares about you because of what you're going through? Have you been overcome by fear and not have joy? Has that been true about you? Could either of these things be true of us even today as we gather? Well, be of good cheer. I've got good news for you. The good news from God himself, from the pages of scriptures, life does not have to wear you down. Now, of course, I'm making the assumption that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The scripture does say, uh, for those who've been spurning the Lord, who have refused to uh, yield their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, things are indeed difficult. After all, the scripture says to those people, the way of the transgressor is hard. But the answer for you today, for those who may be spurning the Lord, the answer is to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Run to Christ. Run to the rock. Run to him who can set you free from the bondage. Set you free from all that turmoil. And show you how to live in this world, even in the midst of trouble. But the focus of my message today is for all of us who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, but for whatever reason, we have lost perspective, perhaps. Uh, and we have uh, never, it could be that we've never fully understood how we can have a life of joy in the midst of trouble. You never understood that fully. You know, God has never promised any of us to give us a trouble-free life, as I've already alluded to that. Jesus says each day is enough trouble of its own. But he did tell us, don't be anxious. Don't worry about it. You see, therein lies the difference. And so, you see, it is possible that God wants us to learn a great Lesson. Faith in God's unfailing promises will always remove anxiety. It will always remove fear. You've got to trust in the promises of God. See, the Lord expects His children to walk by faith, as Ephesians says, and not by sight. The Lord wants us to have courage, regardless of the magnitude of the difficulties that we face, even if these difficulties are life-threatening. He still tells us to have courage, still tells us not to fear, not to be dismayed. 
I'm here to bring great news to you, great joy. And I trust after today as we will, I will lead you through a journey through the pages of Scripture of God's glorious Word to show you how you and I can have victory in the midst of great turmoil. There are many stories scattered throughout the Scripture that span the millennia of history. These stories show great victory in the people of God, and it shows great failures. And we learn from both. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-11, through 11, tells us that when God redeemed Israel out of, out of Egypt, says He baptized a nation in the Red Sea, He led them in the wilderness, but the Scripture says that many failed to reach the Promised Land. As Hebrews says, God said He swore in His wrath that those who dwelt in unbelief, He says, He says, I will not allow them to enter into my rest. And so the Scripture reveals to us that the majority of the nation failed, did not enter that rest. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10.11 tells us, here's what it says, Now these things happened to them as an example, that they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Everything that you find in the Scriptures, all of these stories, these events, were written for our instruction, that we are to learn from them. We are to learn from the failures of those and do not imitate those failures. And likewise, to learn from the great victories that God gave His people and learn from that. Yes, we must learn from others and their failures, and we learn from the great victories. You don't have to be anxious. You do not have to fear. You don't have to be weighed down wondering, is there a way out? It doesn't have to be that way. Now listen carefully. I'm going to show you from Scriptures the way to victory. The Word of God contains it. We're going to begin by taking a look at those passages uh, from Scripture, but then we're going to take an ex- uh, that I read in our Scripture reading. We're going to start there, but then we're going to take a journey to the Old Testament and see how the saints won the day. Let's begin the great journey by looking at these two New Testament passages that I read a moment ago. If you turn, first of all, to, to Mark chapter 4, again, looking at verses 35 through 41, Jesus had finished teaching on some of his kingdom parables. And he was teaching from a boat off the shore, we are told, from Mark's account. And we see that when evening arose, he told his disciples, we're going to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And on the way over, a fierce storm arises on the Sea of Galilee, which is not unusual for the Sea of Galilee for such a storm to suddenly come upon uh, individuals. The topography of the area is quite interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know that uh, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. There are uh, these great cliffs, some up a thousand uh, feet high, that descend quickly down to the shore. Uh, the climate is of such a nature uh, of, of the, the wind as it can come down, and suddenly you can, you can be calm on the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's 20 miles long, but it's only four to eight miles wide. 
And most often we read the accounts of Jesus, they're going across the lake, four to eight miles at the max. You can start out well, and before you know it, you're in the midst of a great storm. And that's exactly what happened here. And we see that, that likely the, the disciples, they were in a boat that was about 27 feet long and about 8 feet wide. And say, so how do I know that? Well, it's interesting. In the 1980s, several archaeologists found some fishing boats that were documented all the way back to about 40 B.C. And they, these boats that they were in were about 27 feet long. They weren't a small little boat. But that's what probably they were in. We're told in the story that Jesus was sound asleep in the back in the stern of the boat when this great storm arose. Now, Jesus is in the back of the boat. We're told in our account, if you look at verse uh, 37 there, it says, There arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were already breaking over into the boat, and it says it was filling up the boat. Now, I'm not a mariner, but I do know this. I do know a little bit of physics. You get enough water coming over in the boat, it's not going to take long for that boat to sink. And that's what was already happening. I mean, the danger was real. The boat was filling up. And our text says, all the disciples are there. They go back to the stern of the boat to get Jesus. Now, that doesn't help either. Everybody to rush to the back of the boat. And the boat's filling up. But, yes, they're in the back of the boat. And they're trying to wake up Jesus. He says, don't you care that we're perishing? They weren't exaggerating the danger. It was real. They're in the middle of this. They're out in the lake. And they're in the middle of this. This storm, who knows how long the gusts of wind could be, 40, 50 mile an hour squall winds. The waves uh, are quite large. Uh, in fact, in the 1990s, there's documentation in a storm that there were 10 foot waves crashing on the shore of northern Galilee. I mean, these waves can be big. I mean, the danger was real. So, in the midst of this great storm, Uh, The disciples are concerned that Jesus doesn't care about them. So they wake up Jesus, and what does he do? He gets up, and it says that he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush and be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Now, one thing you recognize immediately about this, in the midst of the storm, all that Jesus had to say was, hush, be still. The wind stops like that. The waves calm down, and it says the sea was was perfectly calm. Instantaneously, it happened. Well, we ought not to be surprised, are we? Because the Scripture says that the Son of God was the agent of creation. Read just John chapter 1 sometime, Colossians 1 sometime, and you'll see that uh, the Son of God was the agent of creation. Now this, but what does Jesus do here? He says he rebukes his disciples. Verse 40, take a look. Why are you so afraid? 
How is it you have no faith? Now, they could have come back to Jesus and said, we have every right to be afraid. The boat is filling up. And the storm is great. But Jesus rebukes them. He admonishes them for being afraid. And he says, how is it you have no faith? See, that was the problem. We learn, first of all, from this text, that fear and faith do not coexist. You got to remember that where there is faith, there is no fear. And where there is fear, there is no faith. Now, I don't often do this to interact, to have the congregation interact with the message, but I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to, this is so important that you understand this, I want you to repeat after me. Here's what I want you to repeat where there is faith, there is no fear. Ready? Where there is faith, there is no fear. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to learn that lesson. It's so important in your life, it will be life-transforming. You just learn that one lesson. Where there's faith, there's no fear. Jesus said you shouldn't have been afraid. After all, why shouldn't they have been afraid? Because they had God... The Son of God in the back of the boat. That's why they should not have been afraid. If you have God with you, why should you be afraid about anything? That's what he's trying to, he's seeking to communicate to them. Now here's a great spiritual principle. And here is a doctrine that is so vital. You know, sometimes you hear this. Uh, among sincere, well-meaning Christians that we don't emphasize doctrine. We want to emphasize practical Christianity. And you Reformed Presbyterians get all tied up in, in these doctrines. And why don't you just emphasize something practical? Brother, let me tell you something. There is nothing more practical in your life than for you to understand not only intellectually, but with your heart and your will, that God is sovereign. I don't know a few things more practical than understanding that God is sovereign over the universe and that He's sovereign in your life. That is one of the most practical things you'll ever see. And I trust by the end of the, uh, this morning's message, you'll understand how true that is. <clears throat> Notice you understand this biblical... Uh, doctrine of God's sovereignty. Once you understand it, your life's going to be changed. And a lot of the problems that you experience, you know, the trouble may still be there, but it's not going to bother you the way it maybe once did. Again, if God is with you, if the Son of God is in the back of the boat, Jesus had every reason to tell his disciples, Why are you afraid? Why? Where's your faith? So much in our lives can be uh, so much better if we just simply understand this great doctrine of God's sovereignty. But you see, it, it's, it's got to leave just an intellectual comprehension. I've talked to Christians down through the years, and uh, especially among Presbyterians, and they'll acknowledge the sovereignty of God. But then I see it as it works out in their lives and, and some of the problems they experience and the 
uh, the distress, emotional stress that they go into. And I often have to tell them, you know, you know it up here, but here's what's happened. It hasn't come down here yet. It hasn't really grabbed a hold of you. It's not in your heart. And if it's not in your heart, it doesn't work itself out in your will and how you live. These doctrines are meant to be life-changing. you got to intellectually comprehend it, yes, but it has to be from the heart that you appreciate, that you love these things. Now let's take a look at this other uh, situation that Jesus uh, encountered with his disciples. Turn to our passage in Matthew 14 and look at verses 22-33. So we have two episodes of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples where he's teaching them a great lesson. This instance here where Jesus is going to walk on the water comes right at the, at the heel of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus miraculously fed this crowd of 5,000 with five loaves of two fish. Already we're told in the scriptures, especially in Mark's account, that when he had finished administering and feeding the crowd. It, we're already told in the text that it was near evening hours. The disciples were already concerned where we're we going to find food this time of the hour. So evening was approaching. Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to go across the sea to Bethsaida. You go ahead. I'm going to give last instructions to the crowd. I'll dismiss them. And Jesus does that. And he goes up on top of a mountain to pray. And we're told that <coughs> The disciples encounter a strong wind. Now, they're rolling to Bethsaida. Now, they start out probably in the early evening hours. Jesus, from a mountaintop, sees what's going on. He's able to see that though that they're struggling. In other words, they're not gaining much headway. If you've got a strong wind against you and you're rowing, you're not going to make much progress. The evidence here is they probably were struggling up to six, seven, eight hours trying to get across uh, just one portion of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus sees they're struggling and then comes to them, we're told, in the fourth watch, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. Now, let me ask you something. Do you really believe in God's sovereignty enough to believe that God knows all things? That he sees all things? Can we say that uh, just because he's on a mountaintop, that he had greater than 20-20 vision? Well, it doesn't matter all the logistics there. The fact is, Jesus saw and knew they were in trouble and they weren't gaining any progress. And then he comes to them. Your God knows all things. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And Jesus comes walking on the water to his disciples. Now, of course, at 3 and 6 a.m., they see this phantom walking on the water, and it says they're afraid. It's a ghost. Well, after all, do men walk on water? I don't think so. So they, they're wondering, what is this that we're seeing? We're in real trouble. And then Jesus tells them something. Look, look at verse 27, and this is another important lesson for us. 
Jesus says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now let's not miss how important what Jesus said. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, this phrase, take courage and don't fear, is one of the most common. It is a very common phrase in the Scriptures, and we're going to take a look at it in the Old Testament, just how common it is. As I said earlier, where there is faith, there is no fear, right? We have learned that courage, right here, we learn that courage and fear, they don't coexist either. It is not that we, as some tell us, like soldiers on the battlefield, that it's, it's courageous, though you're afraid, afraid of dying, you just muster up enough courage to act. Now, there's something in commendable in the fact that when you realize a certain danger, that you go ahead and do a certain duty despite the fear. But, brethren, that is not how the Bible portrays courage. I want you to know that. When the Bible portrays courage, when it says to have courage, it always says with that, do not be afraid. So biblical courage is acting without fear. Why? Because you understand the sovereignty of God. You understand who you're dealing with. That's why you can be courageous. So let's do some biblical thinking here. Where there is faith, there's no fear. And where there is courage, there is no fear. So what is the implication? Faith produces courage. Let that one sink in. Faith produces courage in your life. You want to be courageous, then you need to exercise faith. I can assure you that this courage is not humanly generated uh, it is not a human courage that produces no fear. The courage or the faith that produces courage is a specific faith in the promises of God. That is the difference. Faith in God's promises produces a life of courage and no fear. So the answer is you've got to believe the word of God. You've got to believe it's all true. You've got to believe that your God is with you. You've got to believe that Jesus loves you if you're thinking to serve Him. It's no mystery, brethren. You want victory over anxiety today? You want joy in the midst of great troubles? Then learn to live by faith in the promises of God to you, and then the anxiety will leave you. You know, Peter, he beckoned Jesus when he saw Jesus, and, and some will say, you know, this is typical Peter, hey, Jesus, bid me to come out of the waters too. Okay, come on. And Peter was walking on water. Men don't walk on water. He saw Jesus walk on water. Peter's walking on water. And we're told in our text he's doing fine until what? He looks at the wind. He begins to look at the circumstances. I can only imagine what's going on in his mind. What in the world am I doing out here? Walking on this water. Immediately, it says he began to sink. He cries out, 
Save me, Jesus. Save me. And Jesus reaches down and grabs a hold of him. But what does Jesus tell Peter? Take a look what he said in verse 31 here. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, Peter was not doing this in his own strength. Obviously, it was Jesus that was empowering him to do an amazing thing. And he was doing fine as long as he obviously was trusting in Jesus as giving him the power to do this. But the minute, the moment he took his eyes off Christ and focused on the circumstances, that's when he got into trouble. And that's when you and I get into trouble. When you focus on the circumstances and not on the promise. And so what we, we see as he focused on those circumstances, he became afraid. His doubt, his fear stemmed from threatening circumstances. And he was looking at that rather than depending upon the great strength of Christ who was empowering him to do something that amazing. And when Peter got into the boat, we're told that the wind stopped, the disciples finally understood, and they said, certainly you are God's son. Now it's interesting that in Mark's account of this incident, and actually John refers to it, neither Mark or John ever referred to Peter walking on the water. They, they, they exclude that from their account, for whatever reason. But we know it happened because Matthew relates it. And we're told that in Mark 6, we'll just read it for yourself there for a moment. Turn to, to Mark 6, 52, because this is, this is significant. Verse 51 of Mark 6 says, They got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now, words mean what they mean in their context. You can go through the scriptures and we talk about God hardening hearts, God giving people over, like he gave the scribes and the Pharisees. The hardened heart here that the disciples were experiencing is not the same hardening of heart that the scribes and the Pharisees experienced that Jesus had to deal with. More than likely, this... This hardening of the heart is they failed to put it together. That's what it says. Look, if Jesus can feed a crowd of 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes, surely it's no amazing thing for him to calm the sea. I mean, he can do, if he can do one miraculous thing, can he not do another? That's what they're uh, failing to understand. They're not making the correct connections in their thinking. What are we seeing thus far? Well, we've seen thus far that where there is faith, there is no fear. We have seen that where there is courage, there is no fear. We have seen that faith produces courage. Now, let's take a journey. Take a look at some passages throughout the scriptures that relay these biblical principles for us. Now, remember what we say in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Everything that happened before was written for our instruction that we are to learn from. We are to learn from these stories. 
So as we read these stories, you need to ask yourself, what does God want me to understand from this? Because it was written, it occurred for our edification. So as a warning, don't do that, or emulate some of these. Well, turn over with me to Numbers chapter 13. And we're going to start with verses 1 through 3, what God said to Moses as he was leading the nation of Israel across the wilderness into the promised land. And they had arrived at the promised land. And here's what God said. Look at Numbers 13, verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourselves men, so that they may spy out the land of the, the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. And so we're told that Moses recounts that. Now, what we need to understand, first of all, God told Moses, I'm going to give you the land. Now, there's your promise. I'm going to give it to you. So when Moses relates and takes the, the spies, one from each tribe of Israel, he tells them, I want you to go in and see how good the, the land is. Is it good or bad? Are the cities in which they live, are they, uh, in, do they have fortifications or are they open camps? Uh, how is the land? Is it lean or is it good? Make every effort to get some of the fruit of the land. You know all that that was in the spying out the land of Canaan? I'll, I'll refer to it in a military term. It was a military reconnaissance report. That's what it was. The it wasn't an issue whether you ought to go in. It's simply get intelligence so that we know what we're dealing with. There was never the issue that you ought not to go. However, here's what happens. We're told in verses of, in chapter 13, verses 25 through 33, you got ten of the spies that go in there. They see that the land is very good, but they said... Nevertheless, the land, these people, verse 28, they live in the land, they're strong, the cities are fortified, they're very large. And moreover, we saw the sons of the descendants of Anak there, some giants. There are some of these men that are giants that live in these fortified cities. Now, how did Caleb, first of all, that stirred people up when they got that before. And we're told in verse 30 there, Numbers 13, Caleb had to quiet the people. I mean, that really got them going. But it was Caleb that said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. Now, what is the difference between Caleb and the other spies? And also true of Joshua. It was only Joshua and Caleb that had a differing perspective. Now, did the ten spies see something different from Caleb and Joshua? No. Was it a factual report that the ten spies gave? Yes, it was factual. But verse 31 says, and 32 says, the ten spies gave a bad report. Why does God say it's a bad report? Because there's no faith. Because the assessment of the ten spies was... Because of these giants, because they live in these fortified cities, yes, it may be a wonderful, fruitful land, but we can't overcome them. Well, why can't you overcome them? Just because they're strong? 
Just because they're giants? Because they live in fortified cities? Is that why you can't overcome them? Caleb didn't think that way. Joshua didn't think that way. We shall surely overcome. After all, what did God tell Moses? I will give you the land. You see, there's your promise. Well, the reaction of the people was not good. We're told in Numbers 14, I call this one of the biggest pity parties in history. Because they had a big pity party. Because verse 1, it says, all the con- chapter 14, all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And when you have a pity party, you begin to shift blame. It's your fault. Moses, they grow in an errand. You're the one that led us out here to perish. And they, and of all things, let's go back to Egypt. <laughs> Are you serious? You want to go back to Egypt? Where I delivered you out of such bondage for 400 years? You want to go back? Well, at least we had some food to eat. And, and we didn't have, we didn't have all these things to contend with. If you look at chapter numbers 14, Look at Caleb. It's wonderful what he said. Verse 6. Numbers 14, verse 6 and following. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. They understood the significance. They spoke to all the congregation of the sons, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You catch that? The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. If God has given you a promise, then live by the promise. Just don't rebel. You see, when you have faith, you know, here's the reality, brethren. When you and I are overcome by that fear, when we begin to doubt, Jesus was, it was obviously correct when he says, Oh, ye of little faith, why are you questioning me? You see, when we, when we don't live by faith, we don't have that courage where that faith produces, we are guilty of assaulting the glory of God. It's a rebellious act. That's why God takes it so seriously. That's why the people, they won't obey, they won't go in, and they will wander one year for every day that was spied out. That's why they will wander for 40 years. And guess what? When they're going to look at this count, when Joshua does lead the nation over the land of uh, the promised land and they deal with Jericho, you remember what Rahab the harlot said? We know all about this. We have heard. Now, we're not told how they heard. But I guess through the grapevine, from Egypt all the way up to Jericho, Rahab said, they're terrified of you. Here's the reality. The land of Canaan, they were afraid of the children of Israel. But Israel did not know that, did they? If only they had believed the promise that all that heartache would have been spared. 
You see, fear is a challenge to God's sovereignty, particularly when God has promised victory. If we only believed in him, now I do want you to turn to Joshua 1. Remember I told you that phrase that's often together about courage and not having fear? Look at Joshua 1, beginning at verse 1 through verse 9. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross the Jordan, you and all his people, to the land which I am giving to them and to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Let that sink in. God says to his people, I will never fail you, and I will never forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give the people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you to not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. There it is. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. If you are seeking my face, if you're seeking to be holy unto me, and you're, you're, you're yearning after righteousness, then your way will be made prosperous. You don't need to fear anybody, because I'm with you. I'm not going to forsake you. Just be strong and courageous. You know, the idea of strength is a strength of character. I could go into it, but I won't. It's interesting that Kings talks about Solomon when he comes to the throne. God admonished him and says, be strong and show yourself a man. That's a message in itself about male uh, hood and, and families, men need to trust in their God and demonstrate a fidelity to Him. Show yourself a man. Believe the promises of God. Be courageous. Don't have any fear. God's with you. Just believe the promises and all will be well. But we're told here... Uh, <clears throat> You see, if we, if we have the sovereign God, we have his promises, do we not? If we have sought the Lord and his law, we should not have any fear if we're seeking the Lord. See, the assurance of the knowledge that our sovereign God is with us, that is our confidence, that he's with us. That's where we get our, our hope. He's with us. Remember, Jesus rebuked the disciples in the boat for their unbelief and their fear. You had me, why are you afraid? 
Brethren, I'm telling you that with this assurance of the most preciousness of the Word of God, these truths, if you, if you let these sink in, they will change your life. No question about it. Take a look at Joshua 11.6 for a moment. All I'll say there in the context, you had all these teams that decided they're going to take on Israel. So you had all these various armies of five nations saying, we're going to get Israel. Now that's intimidating. We learn from uh, verse 6 here, Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. And you shall hamstring their horses and bury their chariots with fire. Now, verse 4 had informed them, they came out and they were armies were with them as many as the sand that is on the seashore with many horses and chariots. That's, that's another way of saying there was a whole bunch of them. But God says, don't be afraid. Whoa, there's all these armies, God. Don't be afraid. <coughs> I'm with you. Wow. Turn with me to, what do we know, the lesson we learned from here? It doesn't matter how intimidating your circumstance is. It doesn't matter how many your enemies are. That's the lesson. It doesn't matter. God is with you. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. That's the point. And to see how God taught this in another place, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. Second Kings 6. And we're going to start at verse 14. Now here's the setting. You had this nation of the Arameans, and they're upset with the prophet Elisha, and somehow... The king of the Arameans thought, how does this man know what goes on, what I say in my bedchamber? Well, he's a prophet. <laughs> That's how he knows. Well, the point was here, we're going to get him. Get that guy. And they sent out an army to get Elisha and his servant. Now, how would you like to be two people and you have an army hunting you down? Kind of intimidating, isn't it? whole army out to get you? Well, look at verse 14. And he sent horses, talking about the king of the Arameans, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. They came by night, surrounded the city. They found out where he was. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and some and, and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what are we going to do? And so he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Imagine the servant going, what? What do you mean they're more with us than with them? And it says, and when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, why don't let's back up? I'm missing one of the most important verses. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. 
And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In other words, the heavenly host was ready at the command of Jehovah. Just tell us when, and we'll take care of them. And Elisha says, servant, you don't see the reality. The reality is there's more with us than with them. And he got to see the heavenly host ready to do battle for the prophet and his servant. And Elisha will strike them blind, and they'll find out they're in, they're in Israeli territory. Another uh, sermon in itself is when this army was all blind, and, and they find themselves <coughs> in Israel's territory. Other says, well, should we kill them? And Elisha says, no. They're captives. Let them go. Let them go. See, the thing about it was, in this instance, they will never, ever threaten Israel again, this group. But the whole point here is, you see, sometimes, brethren, you don't know what's going behind the scenes. I don't, it doesn't matter what trouble you and I are going through. You don't know what God is orchestrating behind the scenes on your behalf. Just believe the promise. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Turn with me to Second Chronicles. Here's another great story. Turn to Second Chronicles. Chapter 20. Verses 1 through 9. We have a godly king of Judah by the name of Jehoshaphat. And we're told here in Second Chronicles 20, beginning at verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Minuites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea and out of Aram, and behold, they are at Hazion Tamar, that is, in Gaiti. Jehoshaphat was afraid. And turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek help. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not God in the heavens? Art thou not ruler over the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hand, so that no one can stand against thee. Did not, not thou, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of the land before the people of Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, thy friend forever? And they lived in it, and they have built thee a sanctuary for their name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before the house before thee, for thy name is in the house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou wilt hear and deliver us. Now, the thing you need to understand here, here's what's good about this passage. As godly as Jehoshaphat was, it says he's afraid. He's afraid. The, the immediate emotion was, they're out to get us, and there's a lot of them. But here's what he does, and here's what we learn from it. What does he do? 
with his fear. And here's what you and I got to do. You go to God in prayer. That's what he did. He goes to God in prayer to deal with his fear. And what does he do in this, in his praying? He's remembering all the great things of the past that God has done for his people, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembers the mighty deeds of God. He, and what he's doing, he's engendering faith now in the promises of God. And then consequently, he says, in remembering these mighty deeds on behalf of the people, what this does, when you remember the mighty deeds of God, what that does, it feeds faith in the promises of God. It nourishes it. It builds it up to the point that he says, he will deliver us. So that's how he dealt with his fear. And so we see that in Jehoshaphat, we learn this lesson uh, of how to deal with your fear. It's evident that Jehoshaphat learned his lesson from the uh, encounter with Ahab. Uh, Ahab, the, the wicked king of the northern kingdom, and Jehoshaphat was king of Judah. Ahab said, we need to deal with the Syrian threat. Well, that's when we have uh, Ahab convincing. I've always been amazed by this. Remember, in, in these times, it's like a chess game. You get the king, it's over. So what does Ahab does? Convinces Jehoshaphat, why don't you wear my army in battle? And he gets in his army. What is he thinking? And, but then we have that great story. But now remember, God to the Father says, you're going to die. Ahab says, now you've always prophesied against me. Okay, you're going to live. No, you're telling a lie. Okay, you're going to die. <laughs> that random shot by that soldier retreating catches Ahab in the only spot and kills him. Joseph, I think, learned his lesson. Because what happens here, we're told in Second Chronicles 19, that Jehu, the son of Hanani, the, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself? Brother, we don't need the help of the wicked to prevail. We don't need them. You don't need to compromise the faith to advance. You don't need to compromise anywhere. You know, nations ought to understand this. America ought to understand this. We don't need to capitulate to anyone. We just need to remember the God who had mercy on this country, return to our God, repent of our sins. You don't need the wicked to assist you. You have God with you. You have His promises He won't forsake you. Look over at Second Kings for a moment, 19. Second Kings 19, verse 6. <coughs> Later on, you have this another godly king, Hezekiah. And you have this, uh, this Assyrian army that has already conquered the northern kingdom a century before and now has invaded Judah to deal with Jerusalem. 
And we're told that Isaiah the prophet said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now I want you to... um, And then, in this regard, if you look at verses 14 through 19, you're going to see this great godly prayer. Now, Isaiah the prophet sent word, don't be afraid of the Assyrians. (laughs) Now, remember this letter that Rabshakeh, the the emissary of the Assyrians, said, look, we have destroyed Egypt. We've destroyed everybody that we've encountered. Their gods did not save them. So what makes you think your God's going to save you? It's kind of insulting to God, isn't it? And Hezekiah knew that. And one of the great prayers of all of Scripture we see in verse 14 of 2 Kings 19. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers, read it, went up to the house of the Lord, spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, thou art the God, thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thy ear, O Lord. Hear, open thine eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which has been sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations in their lands. They cast their gods into the fire. They were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood, and stone, so they have destroyed them. And now, O Lord our God, pray, deliver us from the hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, Lord, art God. What we learn from Hezekiah is that he recognized who God was. He had no reason to be afraid. He says, God, he says, I want you to vindicate the glory of your name. See, in our prayer life, that's what we should want. Yeah, we want to have deliverance. You think Hezekiah wanted to die at the hands of the Assyrians? You know what the Assyrians used to do with some of their enemies? They'd skin them and put their skins up on the walls of Nineveh. Now, you think uh, Hezekiah thought things were going to go well? Well, they said, come on, surrender, and we'll let you all be under your shade tree again. To show you how inspiring Hezekiah was, turn over to second, the, uh, the Chronicles account of this. Turn to Second Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32, and look at verses 6 through 8. We're going to see how Hezekiah inspired the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 32, verses 6 through 8. And he appointed military officers over the people. Now, this is what Hezekiah did. Gathered them in the square at the city gate and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Here's our phrase, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude which is with him, for the one with us is greater than the one with him. Oh, you love this. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. How would you like to have a leader of a nation like this? Would you like to have that kind of leader? Pray for that kind of leader one day by his grace. You have this mighty army against you. Don't be strong and courageous. 
Greater is he that's with us than with them. This mighty army that's destroyed everybody, so what? They only have the arm of flesh. We got God on our side. So be strong. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. You see, godly leaders inspire hope and faith in the promises of God. Notice that Hezekiah, Hezekiah, he's inspiring in all that he says. Brethren, you've got to let go of your fear. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know all the circumstances that you are, are having to deal with. As Jesus says, each day is enough trouble. I'm probably not telling you anything new. You may have any trouble making your, uh, paying your bills. You, you may have issues in the family. You may have uh, trouble at work. You may have lost your job. And you say, well, where, you know, what's going to happen now? It doesn't matter. It doesn't. Believe the promises of God. Don't be afraid. Let go of the fear. You don't look at your circumstances. You don't trust in your circumstances. God has made you a promise that he will not leave you or forsake you. And if you do, you see, if you let go of that and you trust in the promises of God, then you're going to see that your faith, that will produce courage and it will displace the fear. It will displace the depression. And after all, you know what's going to happen? It's going to be what Jesus says. You're going to have peace. You're going to have peace. In the midst, he's not going to take away. Does it say he's going to take away the troubles? He says, "I can give you peace anyway." Well, that's what matters, isn't it? That even in tough times, you can have the peace of God that passes all understanding. You know, one of my when I go through tough times. You know, one passage that I frequently have gone to, turn over to Psalm 37. I have found myself going to this passage so many times. Of course, I could have gone to all these other passages that I've led us through, but I find myself going to the Psalm here frequently. Psalm 37, verses 23 through 25. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. He delights in his way. Talking about a person who is seeking to honor the Lord. It says the Lord will establish his steps. The Lord will delight in his way. Verse 24. There for the longest time. I've always looked at verse 25 about how I've been young and now I'm old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or descendants begging bread. I've always gone to that one, and I just skipped right over verse 24. And I said, wow, why did I skip over verse 24? When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds your hand. If you fall, it's not going to be total. And here's the comfort. Let this image in your mind be there. If you fall... He's got you. 
He says, I'm holding your hand. I've got you. Isn't that a precious image of the Lord holding your hand and keeping you from falling to that destruction? And all the time that he has you holding your hand, as it were, he's whispering in your ear, it's okay. It's all right. It's going to be fine. Just trust in me. I got you. Don't worry. I'm with you. You know what happens? You come away rejoicing. How the faith produces the courage. And so that even if it still looks bad, you say, you know, I I still have peace. I still have peace. You know, God inspires us with his sovereignty. If you look at Isaiah 44, turn over to Isaiah 44. We're coming to an end here. Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. Remember I told you that when times get tough and you're afraid and you're anxious, you got to go to the Lord in prayer like Jehoshaphat who was afraid and how he dealt with his fear. He goes to the Lord and prays and remembers who God is. Well, here's what you got to remember about your God. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I'm the first and I'm the last. There's no God besides me. And who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced to you and declared it? And are and you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. God seeks to inspire us with his sovereignty. I was thinking years ago when we lived here in Atlanta, <clears throat> when we were down in the church in Dunwoody, and then the prayer meeting, and I thought about this recently. You know, was that prayer meeting? Evelyn Green. Now, let me tell you much more about that, do I? Dick Carlson. Some others. Some of the great prayer warriors that I know. Now, look at Lord Jesus. He's coming home up here, and it was, I listened to Peach Radio, and Roski was on. It was a national day of prayer coming up. And you could call in about it. I said, well, I'm going to call in. And everybody was calling in, and I said, you know, Roski, it's important, not just the day of prayer, but you've got to worship the true God, because what good is there to worship a God who doesn't really exist? And I kept waiting for her to air. She aired everybody else, but she didn't air John. And I called back three times, and finally she admitted, I said, you're not going to air it, are you? She said, no. I said, why? Well, it's too, it's too narrow-minded. <laughs> Brethren, what good is a day of prayer to a God who doesn't exist? None. I am the God. Is there any other besides me? 
Is there any other rock? I don't know of none. There's no other God. You and I have the true living God. You and I got the Savior. We have Him in our presence. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. If I go away, I, I will come again. And I'm going to build a place and I'm going to receive you to myself. We don't have to fear death. We don't. And He can give us the peace. As Philippians says, the peace that passes all understanding. See, brethren, you've got to believe in the promises of the Lord. If you believe in those promises, it will engender and feed faith. And where there is faith, there is no fear. Jesus will give you that peace, and he'll give it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he gives it. You weigh down here today? Let it go. And believe in your God. Believe in your Savior. Have faith. Have courage. It's all right. It'll be all right for you. Just believe the promises. All of these stories were given for your sake today. They were. You just got to believe in them. And your life will change. It doesn't have to be the way it has been.